Thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif, an urban planner, and you're more than welcome to join my big journey of exploring the making of smarter and more livable cities. Please don't forget to follow Urbanistica on the different social media platforms. And also let's connect on LinkedIn. Big thanks to Urbanistica podcast partner, Avery. Avery is an international engineering and design company providing sustainable solutions in the fields of energy, industry, and infrastructure. Are you ready for a new episode? Let's go for it. Thank you, Mr. How are you doing? Very well. The sun is shining in Stockholm. It's always a pleasure to uh, survive the winter and get to this beautiful <laughs> stage. <laughs> it's almost midsummer. Yeah. Nights. Uh, the nights are getting shorter. Everyone is happy. Yeah, you really notice everyone is outside <laughs> with a smile on their face. But which winter is uh, is better? Is it the one in Sweden or the one in like in Canada? Oh, the one here, definitely. In Sweden? Yes. Really? What's the difference? <laughs> I thought we are the same. It's, uh, I would say the weather in Canada is much more extreme. So we can easily get these minus 35 winters. And then in the summer, it's plus 35, plus 37. Okay. So the, the Logum Swedish weather, I yeah. think, is just beautiful. But uh, I, I was in a language class soon after I got here. And uh, the instructor who was Swedish said, you know, say something that you prefer about Sweden compared to where you come from. And I said, it's the weather. And he said, well, you are either from Canada or Iceland because nobody else says that the Swedish weather is good. <laughs> Not even the Swedes. Not even the Swedes. But like, is it? Only this, which part of Canada, the south, the north, or does it matter? Uh, it's a bit more temperate to the coast. Like, I think mm. um, that's probably why a lot of Swedes like Vancouver. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there, the weather might be more comparable to Gothenburg. Uh, maybe mm. you get one or two snowfalls a year. Yeah. Uh, not so hot in the summer. But it's raining a lot. Uh, yeah, the winter, it rains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I used to live there. Yeah. Um, but most recently, I've uh, I've lived in Ottawa. and. There, uh, you get these really wild temperature swings and, you know, sometimes four meters of snow. It's crazy. <laughs> I'm getting cold now. <laughs> so uh, you are our storyteller. Tell me, tell the listeners, how would you like to introduce yourself and tell us about your passion? Uh, so I'm, uh, as you can probably guess from the first part of the conversation, I'm, I'm Canadian, but I've been living in Sweden for just over 10 years. Uh, I'm educated as an architect, but I've been working in sustainability since uh, since the middle of my program, actually. Uh, I've always been interested in sustainability. Since 1999, I was trying to get a job in sustainability, but there really wasn't much to be had. It was very limited work, kind of straw bale houses. I went to school in Canada as well. And, um, and, and then uh, uh, Al Gore's film, uh, an Inconvenient Truth came out, and that kind of changed the game, at least for sustainability in Canada. Suddenly there was an industry and, and a demand, and uh, I had quite good timing to uh, have a mentor that kind of took me under his wing early on. So my career really got started in 2007 doing sustainability work, and that was kind of midway through my, uh, my architecture education. 
So I haven't practiced as an architect. I've always kind of been a, a sustainability advisor, consultant. Yeah, yeah. And, and take us back in time, like uh, where you grew up, mm -hmm. how you grew up, and your childhood. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it's kind of funny to find myself on an urban podcast because <laughs> uh, I grew up with quite a different upbringing. I grew up on a beef cattle farm in central Canada. Um, you know, every generation before me kind of grew up on, on, on a similar kind of part of, of the country doing farming. So I'm the first generation of my family not to be a farmer. Um, but it had a really big impression on me, I, I realize in retrospect, just this respect for the land uh, that you, you, know, you, take your, you take your living, you, you take everything that's good uh, from the land, um, but that you cannot rely on it unconditionally. You can get these crazy storms that will just wipe away a year's worth of effort or a summer's worth of planting. So you learn that you live kind of on this knife's mm. edge that you can have these years of plenty and you can have these years where yeah. you really don't have very much. Um, and I think uh, just this, this stewardship that I really learned from my, my parents and my grandparents, not because they said so, but because they led by example, that really impressed on me when I went into architecture that you know, this was something that could transfer yeah. over to the architectural when you decide to study, did they say, oh, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> this is not the future. Yeah, I think... Was, uh, it, was it hard to... to... To take a different direction? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess in a way it was, it was hard because it's quite a departure from, from the things that my, uh, my family has been involved in. Or, but I took a, I took a quite long time to decide what I wanted to do for career. So by the time I decided on architecture, I felt a real sense of purpose about it. Why, why you decided? the architecture yeah uh i guess it uh it kind of happened because um in in one of the years after i finished high school i was a nanny in rome and i ended up in a family of architects um and uh i, I think i kind of absorbed through through their example and learned through them uh how how much of an impression architecture could have on life living in a city like Rome where you're surrounded by this urban fabric that's yeah. just dense with history, um, you know, being able to, to walk through different eras as, as you take a walk through the city. Mm -hmm. So I, I came back from that year really feeling like the direction forward was, was through design. Yeah, yeah. And ended up at, at architecture school. Yeah. Where, where did you study? At Waterloo. It's yeah. about an hour away from Toronto. Also five years? Yeah, it's, a, it's an undergrad. Um, that is four years and then a master's program, yeah. which um, depending how, uh, how careful you are with your time. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I was four years, it shouldn't take that long. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, was, I was very, uh, I was very into, into my work. And yeah, took, yeah. yeah, it took a little longer than maybe it should have. What is, what is the, your, how to say, what do you remember from that time? Like what's your best memory or worst memory? Yeah. Um, you know, before, before I went to this school, I actually, uh, after I'd been accepted, I talked to a few different grads and asked, you know, what do you like about this school? And someone yeah. said, you know, you get to work while, while you're studying. So you get to kind of fill out what it is, uh, that you want to do within the field. Do you want to work in a big firm, small firm? Do you want to do housing? Do you want to do commercial? Um, but one person said, you know, there's, there's a part of the program that has to do with cultural history and it will transform the way that you think about buildings and about the world. Right. And that really, I would say, was the best part of my program. 
um, we we took quite deep dives every single semester into you know, modernism, uh, Renaissance, uh, Greco-Roman, uh, ancient history, looking at not just the buildings of the time, but what were the cultural traditions of the time? What was the literature? What was the what was the music? What was the art? And starting to like pull these parallels between what was happening. In, in political discourse and social development in the arts, and how did that end up getting expressed in architecture? And I think it really, for me, really ingrained that you know, being an architect is a huge responsibility, that you, you have the responsibility to communicate to future generations what today was about. Exactly. Um, so I'd, I'd say like that those were my kind of most yeah. fulfilling moments of architecture school. Yeah. Like being in the classroom with the professors that were showing us, you know, here's how this piece of art or this treatise is reflected in this building. Yeah, yeah. super interesting. Yeah, I see. Super interesting. But still, you you didn't took, like became an architect with focus on the cultural heritage or and so on. Like mm. you're more focused on sustainability. Yes. Yes, I guess in Canada, uh, you know, a cultural building might come from the 1950s uh, or the 1940s or 30s. So it's quite a different scope of work than it is here. Um, and you know, maybe maybe a more limited scope than find in a place like Europe. Um, but I think because because I was really interested in this connection between you know bigger social trends and buildings, which I think sustainability is all about. Um, and and then also feeling that the uh, environmental crisis was something acute that I wanted to be a, a part of resolving. Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of shifted me away from pure architecture and more into this consulting role of getting to work not just with architects but with the engineers and the clients. Yeah. Yes, so it's yeah. been it's been a real uh, real evolution. You, I think you get to deal with a very broad spectrum mm -hmm. of people, like HR people, facilities management. They're conversations that. You know, you might not get to have as an architect. Yeah, yeah. So, do you feel yourself like you're like a proper art architect with a pencil you know, and uh, sketching paper, or no? You feel like you're not really. Yeah, uh... maybe not anymore. <laughs> the last time I opened a drafting program, I think it was uh, ArcCAD or no, AutoCAD 2004. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah. we cannot finish this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so your career were um, like was about consulting, and then you moved to Sweden. Yes. Yes. Why you moved? Yeah. It uh, actually, my my husband ended up. Um, he worked for a Canadian telecom company that got bought by Ericsson, or his division um, got bought by Ericsson. And at the time of the acquisition, Ericsson was sending Swedes over to Canada and Canadians over to okay. Sweden. So we came over in that wave. And uh, I wasn't expecting to find work, but I think six weeks before we got here, I met the CEO of Sweden Green Building Council at a conference in Toronto. Yeah. And um, we had lunch for a couple of hours and he said, yeah, you know, just swing by the offices at uh, Sergistori, <laughs> swing by when you get to Stockholm. Okay, uh, cool. So I was able to land in a job, which um, you know, for, for Ericsson's spouses, it, it's not so often that you can find work on yeah, your own yeah. um, and, and then things just went really well. I, I ended up in a lead project maybe four months after I got here and it just kind of evolved from there. So nice. And we decided to make it semi-permanent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and recently you work at Tengbo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you work with more, which kind of project? 
uh, at Tangboom, I was doing mostly consulting work. So uh, some lead consulting, well consulting, that's really something that we see uh, an evolving market for. Um, and I think that's because the, the conversation around social sustainability is becoming more prominent and more sophisticated. So I think in the early days of sustainability, it was very much about, you know, how is our, how is our energy performance? Can yeah. we tighten that? How can we buy green energy? Can we get recycled content in steel? Um, and, and those conversations just became more and more sophisticated. And until the time when we realized, you know, we're, we're kind of dropping the ball on the social sustainability piece. Um, but the more we dive into it, the more complicated it is. So I think to start to uh, investigate this piece related to health and wellness. It's really tangible. Um, it's, uh, I think, for for someone that occupies a building, it has immediate relevance. Mm. For property owners, they're interested in in creating um, uh, value for their tenants. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think that's that's part of why we've seen that develop. So that was really a lot of my work at Tangle was mm. working with health and well being and. Um, you know, bringing up the the level of knowledge on staff about yeah. uh, about health and well being and how that should be implemented from an architectural perspective. Yeah, because I thought you're only working with uh, the, the ecological part of sustainability, like the energy and so on in the buildings, but you work more with the social as well, right? Yeah, it's really kind of broad spectrum. Mm. Um, that's been a real challenge, I think, as a sustainability professional. Just yeah. when you think you've got a handle on it, the the conversation <laughs> explodes. Um, even in the last five years, you know, the, the work on decarbonization has really accelerated. Um, climate declarations for buildings are now mandatory. Uh, so we, we see that it's, it's a more nuanced discussion that we can have with owners. Like they, they don't need to be told about yeah. energy efficiency. Like they're, in, they're interested in what comes next and how, you know, what's the, what's the complement that we can add to how they're already doing things. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about like um, health and climate and the connection. Can you explain like to me and to the listeners, like what is the, the connection between? Yeah. Uh, so obviously uh, climate is a, is a big um, buzzword right now, more than just a buzzword. Uh, and a lot of the work that we see happening is related to minimizing uh, climate impact. So how can we reduce our, our carbon footprint um, operational energy, we've been getting a good handle on over the years. Now we see that, that the discussions move much more to embodied carbon and embodied emissions. So how can we reduce the, the carbon footprint of new building materials? How can we increase the reuse of materials uh, at an industrial scale? This has traditionally been a, a big challenge, uh, especially for, you know, for large projects that need a large number of doors or a large number of uh, ceiling panels or a large number of windows. Um, so those markets are are developing, um, but it it kind of feels like this piece around climate and health has not really been fully explored, um, and and maybe that's because uh, we we just can't focus on everything at the same time. But if we kind of step back and think, you know, what what are those climate related health impacts? We maybe have a tendency to think a little bit too apocalyptically about it, like mm -hmm. sea level rise and, you know, 500 uh, meter high tsunamis that are, you know, crashing through cities. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, the climate's already changed. Climate-related health impacts are already happening. And in a sense, it's, it, it almost feels like this death by a million cuts because it's not just 
um, people living in coastal communities that are that are having their homes taken away, but it's it's everyday people in in kind of everyday situations whose health is being impacted by the climate already. So, uh, in the first three weeks of July in 2018, there was a heat wave in Sweden that, after the fact, they were able to determine there was about 700 additional deaths during that time that they could attribute to the heat wave. Why is that? Well. You know, some research out of Umeå actually showed that uh, the death rate, the mortality rate, goes up about 10% every time there's three days in a row of temperatures over 27. Wow. 27 is... It's is, nothing. It's nothing. Uh, and one of the problems is that if you're, if you're someone who is you know, largely shut into your residence, you don't have refuge from there. So, uh, you know, in the same kind of time period, beginning of July 2018 in Quebec in Canada, there were almost 100 people that died in a week from the heat wave. And they were able to, to determine that most of the people that died were actually elderly men alone in their apartment. So it kind of, it kind of shows you that it's, it's not merely a climate problem, but it's also like the social connection. The social infrastructure was not there to check on them to make sure they were okay. Mm. And we know that people that are elderly, as well as people with certain illnesses, um, respiratory, for example, children are also really uh, susceptible to, um, to uh, elevated heat levels. Um, do we have appropriate kind of um, oversight for the people that are, that are at risk? Um, it, it's a problem in Sweden because we don't typically design our residences with mechanical cooling kind of rely on, okay, we'll be able to open the windows and flush it out at night. Mm. But are, are we certain that the window size is commensurate to being able to ventilate it properly? Why we don't do the mechanical? I think it, it just traditionally hasn't been, there hasn't been a demand for mechanical, or a need for mechanical cooling. You mean like the air condition or? or yeah, or, yeah. So some sort of like mechanical, mechanical. installation. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Uh, to cool a building. Yeah. Uh, we see that. We see that quite commonly in a commercial occupancy, but not for residential. So you can have an eight-story high apartment building and there's no mechanical cooling. And you know, one of the problems we have in Sweden especially is the sun goes down very late. Yeah. You get these very sharp solar angles that can, that can penetrate right into the building and keep warming up a residence quite yeah. late into the evening. So even your cooling potential that you might take for granted in a more southern location that doesn't actually practically work here. Mm. So it, it really highlights that you know, the, way that we, the way that we design buildings um, can present some long-term health risks when those buildings are, are designed and constructed to be there for 60, 70 years. But I think you know, it, it kind of goes to show that it's not just some like, theoretical person in a faraway country that's dying because temperatures are over 50 degrees and staying there. It's actually everyday neighbors up here in Sweden because the temperature has stayed at 27 degrees for three days in a row. Okay. So, so now when you're talking, like, um, you mentioned a lot that seniors are the most uh, group that are being affected by this. Um, so how, how do we deal with this? Like, mm. what can we do? Is like health department or is like <laughs> about archi architects? Yeah. How to solve this? Well, I think it may be, maybe one of the first pieces that needs to happen is, is the building codes need to accept this is the reality. So we don't build buildings today that we know already won't be able to perform to current climate scenarios, let alone future ones. Um, 
As far as dealing with existing buildings, you know, in, in terms of natural ventilation, we, we can do modeling to show how well can a space be naturally ventilated. And maybe it's a matter of, you know, those windows are actually yeah. too small to be able to deliver it. And maybe then we can uh, address it through a renovation to the window that will make more effective the yeah. ventilation. But, but like the ventilation, when you, when the architects draw, they draw for like, a, how to say, uh, an adult, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Is not for a senior or not during a specific uh, climate. No, I don't time. think they're really they're they're designing to a set of codes that that aren't taking consideration. Like a standard. Uh, yeah. The, when everything is fine and exactly like for a certain kind of bandwidth of of temperatures. Mm. Um, and there are criteria in the Swedish building regulations for solar heat gains, but they're not designed for scenarios where yeah. we've got you know twenty seven thirty upwards of, of 30 degrees. Mm. But is it possible to design for both? Or for the hotter conditions? Yeah, and for the standard. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I think it's probably most practical to, to design only for the future conditions because we're already living in a changed climate. What we're, what we're trying to do now with, with emissions reductions is we're just trying to apply the brakes. Yeah. Anybody that thinks like we can go back to the climate that we had 20 years ago is, I'm sorry, um, this is <laughs> inflammatory, but it's delusional. We, mm -hmm. we have a changed climate and it's going to change more. Mm -hmm. but, but, but what can we do with the, with the existing buildings? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, we cannot demolish everything and no. rebuild. So what is your like, strategy or advice to us architects? What can we do? Mm -hmm. So it, it might be a matter of assessing building by building. You know, these are the sorts of strategies we can implement for um, for increased cooling potential. Um, maybe maybe there are some one room apartments that don't have any cross ventilation, and maybe those cannot continue to be one room apartments. Maybe they need to be connected with another apartment so that we can create sort of a cross draft. Maybe we do need to find mechanical cooling solutions, especially for the upper floors of a building. Um, so some sort Why of like, the upper uh, because heat rises and those upper okay. floor, yeah okay. and and they have less chance to capture shade from from trees or from adjacent buildings for example but usually they have a high price if you're like a, for the view right yeah yeah but not for the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like i live on the first floor and we yeah. get we get nice morning sun on one side of the apartment and then the other side of the apartment gets it a bit later in the day but we, we know that the floors above us, they're getting much more sun for longer periods of yeah, time. And yeah. that's, that's nice in the winter. We're quite dark in the winter, but in the summer, they're, they're, burning. they're absorbing all these, mm. extra, all these extra solar gains yeah. that entire time. So it, it probably will be that some mechanical solutions are required. So, you know, there are some aftermarket uh, air conditioning units that you can install. Maybe you put them in the bedroom okay. uh, to cool the bedroom because that's where you sleep. Yeah. Uh, and that's somewhere where you absolutely need to be. Um, but, you know, this gets more back to the the social aspect of how do we help elderly people that spend a lot more time in their apartments. Like they don't leave their apartments in the middle of the day to go to an air-conditioned office for 10 hours. No. Um, so how how do we create better conditions for them? Because you know, it's not as easy as saying, well, just, you know, just go buy yourself an air conditioner. They're often on limited incomes. Uh, so we need to find some sort of, solution so we can make those conditions more livable mm. yeah this kind of gets to the to the the crux of why it's important for for cities and urban planning to deal with climate change because it's it's going to become more and more important that we create these places of refuge 
where people can leave a too hot apartment or a too hot office building and find shade and some opportunity to get cooled down at the times of the day when the, the heat is at its most dangerous. Yeah, yeah. So it's not only about the architecture and the hardware. Like now we are talking about the software when you build the social layer. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And what can we more do from the architecture point? Mm. Uh, I mean, there's there's a ton of really good passive really? design strategies mm -hmm. that uh, if you go to other parts of the world where they've been working with elevated temperatures for a really long time, like if you look at the souks in, in a place like Morocco, they, yeah. they're designed for for um, lots of heat all during the day. The the ventilate they're you know they're often built around an interior courtyard. Mm. Maybe there's water there that can uh, humidify and yeah. cool the spaces adjacent to it. Um, but we don't design like that. We make these, you know, kind of eight-story um, multi-unit residential buildings. And there's uh, exterior shading is is there, but maybe it's not. We we could definitely work a lot more exterior shading. Um, exterior shading yeah. works great for reducing um, solar gains mm. into the space. Mm. Um, but you know, maybe that's something that architects need to find a way to embrace. Uh, I, I know that many of us think that a lot of solar shading is really ugly. Uh, so we need to kind of find, okay, can we find a better a design solution yeah. that delivers practicality, but that also kind of um, accommodates our design sensibilities? Yeah. yeah. So do you think that we are more focusing on how a building looks more than like the function, like the form than the function? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of. Like in general, of course, there are different, but. Yeah. There's there's a lot of focus on form and maybe functionality has become quite generalized. Like an office, the residence, this residence, uh, you know, this is an apartment building with this many threes and this many fours, many twos. And yeah. I think when it when it gets broken down to the economic conditions, like we need to build this many apartments so we can sell it for this much. Exactly. Then uh, other things can kind of fall by the the wayside. Um, we also have a housing shortage in Sweden. So are people really looking at, you know, I, I don't want to buy this apartment because it's going to be too hot in the summer. It's yeah, kind yeah. of not part of the... Yeah, like you have no choice. Yeah, it's not part of the collective consciousness right now that we're looking at you know, how, how livable is this environment mm -hmm. going to be until you've lived in a place like that. And then you go, no way am I going to live on the fifth floor again after that summer. Yeah. <laughs> it gets like you have more money and then you can, uh, you're able to change the, and you find something. Suitable yeah, for you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So do you, did you work a lot with this kind of projects in Sweden? No, I haven't. Mm. Um, with some projects we've, where there's been uh, public space as part of the building, yeah. we've had some conversations of how can we increase the, uh, the utilization of that space for the local community. Okay, tell me. You need to tell me details now. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know that I can reveal the actual project, but it's a, it's a project in Sumbiberi and there's a public space in front of the project, a major renovation. And they're really looking to make this, uh, this building something of a community anchor. So we were talking about like the landscaping in the front of the building and you know, would there be trees? And then we got into this conversation because they're, the client is a property owner. Um, they, they don't own any residential, but they do have uh, elderly care homes. And we got into this conversation about mm. uh, heat, heat waves, places of refuge. So then we started to discuss you know, how could we turn this uh, urban space in the front of the building into 
a public space that would also provide you know conditions of greater thermal comfort yeah. for, for people that need somewhere to go because there are surrounding residential buildings so what kind of um or or i have a question to you because uh, there was a conference here and we asked like young gail uh, we have like a uh, in in Sweden, when the weather is good, so everyone everybody's outdoor and so on. Uh, what can we do when everything is dark and it's winter? So now you're like when we talk, we're focused on when it's uh, super uh, hot and right. so on. How is it when it's uh, too cold? Is it the same things happening or not? I mean, winter storms are also a risk. Maybe not so much in Sweden, but if you think of other places in the world where. Um... Actually, if you look at you know less urban places in Sweden, if you were somewhere that uh, that got uh, shut off from electricity and power during uh, during an ice storm, that obviously that that creates some risk conditions. But it, it you know it kind of highlights that how well do we design buildings for resilience? Like how well do we design a building that if there was a commercial building, for example, yeah. where the district cooling system broke down and it has happened, um, and and it will probably continue to happen. Um, how how are uh, how are those buildings designed to continue to provide a, an indoor environment that isn't deadly if it takes a couple of days for those systems to yeah, come back yeah, online? Yeah. Same thing with water. Like mm. we have quite good water systems here, mm. um, but if there was some failure in the municipal system, how mm. does a building ensure that there's water safety? Yeah for the period of time until the municipal system is mm. back online. Especially now we're talking about like the wars coming and mm. so on. So maybe it's like we should really pay attention to this aspect. Yeah, I think resilience just has to become a bigger part of the, the conversation. Mm. As, as Sweden is starting to mean, to um, realize water shortage as a place like Uppsala, for example. Um, you know, Vasakronen has some new projects there that are flushing the toilets with uh, with rainwater. Okay. And and this we really haven't seen much of in Sweden, because there's the general mentality that we've got lots of water. Yeah, we have. Yeah. But actually, we we don't. You know, the I think it was again in 2018, uh, during the heat wave. You know, over 200 of Sweden's municipalities um, claimed a water shortage. Wow. Who who will imagine this, right? It's yeah. It, it, in terms of where it registers in the public consciousness, we're not really thinking of Sweden as a country that needs to worry about its water. So what is your advice for the architects and for urban planners mm -hmm. when it comes to this topic? Mm -hmm. What should we think about? Mm -hmm. I'd say, you know, first of all, start digging into um, what, what the future climate scenarios could be like in, in your area, like where you're practicing. Um, just keeping in mind, like, these are moving target. Even even the experts aren't able to absolutely pin these things down. But there's some great resources, like the uh, Network for Greening the Finance Sector, NGFS, as a climate explorer that you can just access for free online. You can pick out your country. You can pick out indicators, like I want to see what happens with air temperature all the way to 2100. Yeah. or no crop yields or uh, precipitation. You can see, um, according to the different scenarios, if we hit the 1.5 degree or 2 degree or business as usual, you can see what the effects will be, what we have for temperature increase. Yeah, so who will imagine that, like uh, in Sweden, we say, okay, wait, there's a lack of, uh, of water. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's something that we just haven't really had to address on, on a big scale before, but 
um, given given the conditions of of the previous heat waves, and you, know, mm. you can even look at a situation like Gotland where they have a critical water shortage. Yeah. So you know, in in some ways, we're you know we're we're implementing strategies that are good. Like we we uh, we have quite effective water consuming fixtures that probably most people have a dual flush toilet at home and efficient shower fixtures, efficient dishwashers. So we're we're doing okay in this sense, but I think just kind of the mindless yeah. consumption of water is is not something that can continue. And and you were giving like uh, you were giving like uh, advice. And you start with uh, checking uh, like what's going to happen. Mm. We can maybe even start like from the beginning or continue. Mm. Uh, about the uh, the climate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's a there's a great tool that anybody can access online from the the network for greening the finance sector, their climate explorer. And there you can your country, you can pick your impact category, whether it's um, uh, air humidity, precipitation temperature even things like crop yields, and you can see what the impacts are if we adhere to the different climate scenarios. So if we manage to hit the 1.5 degrees of warming or 2 degrees of warming, or if we do just business as usual, and you can see, okay, well, we're going to realize on average a 3-degree temperature increase to 2,100. Maybe that sounds like it's a long way off, but we have a lot of buildings standing right now that were built 80 years ago, and we're not, we don't have any plans to tear them down. We need them. And it's, it's going to become a more and more difficult argument over time to tear down buildings just to build something new. So we're going to need to continue to use the buildings up now. If we know that average temperatures are going up by three degrees, we know that the extremes will be higher than that. Mm. So, but, but like this put, again, uh, takes a lot of time, like for architects, you know, as a consultant, like every hour counts and mm. seems like this, this is a big topic that we need to check and study and learn. At the same time, nobody has time for this. Mm. Yeah, it feels like there's been some inertia in starting to work with climate adaptive buildings. Uh, you know, even in 2018, Boverket put out uh, a report, the Swedish Board of Housing, uh, about whether the building codes needed to be updated for future climate scenarios. And, and the conclusion was, no, we, you know, maybe we have to de deal with... Uh, the need for additional cooling yeah. in the future, but not right now, uh, which seems a little bit short-sighted. I mean, before years ago, it did not seem as acute as it, as it yeah. does now. Um, but there are other countries that are uh, hopping on that. Canada, for example, 2019 announced they were yeah. updating all of the, the national building code for future climate scenarios. And that's a pretty broad geography. So in some places, it will be water shortages. Yeah. Okay, then how does that particular climate scenario translate into an adjustment of building code. Things like, uh, you know, we're going to spend more time hovering around zero degrees. Well, you know, so what? Well, if, if the temperature fluctuates around zero, we know that the freeze-thaw cycles are going to be more extreme on, on building envelope components. So whereas, you know, we made a, a, a different kind of a shift from freezing to above freezing, if, if we're not spending more time being really cold, we're spending more time in, in the freeze-thaw cycle, which, which puts a lot of stress on certain components, water creeps in, it freezes, it expands, it up. So maybe we actually need to rethink how we design building envelope components. Yeah, but there's like this, all this, like what you shared now, and, and I guess there are so much other information that we need or knowledge that we need to, to consider. But we as an architect, we, we, we're not really, I mean, now the architects that are working, we're not really trained 
or to, to, to think like this. So how is it important to have a, a sustainability expert within the project? Yeah, it, I would say it's important to have to have an expert as something like an interpreter because the field is so broad. You you can't do everything at once. Um, of course, it's good if a general level of sustainability knowledge uh, permeates through the entire design team because we can't do business as usual. But uh, uh, that's been a real evolution in the role of a sustainability consultant. It's no longer that they come in and say, yeah, do this, this, this. It's more like you have this yeah. huge spectrum of of potential issues and you kind of have to pick like these are the things that we're going to focus these, on and work with exactly these mm. are our non-negotiables these ones we have to do this would be great to pursue but mm. it's challenging right now like building circularity uh, i'm working on a project for vasa cronin right now we're trying to bring down the the climate impact um, and the architect is, is uh, sourcing um, reused gypsum and uh, steel studs and acoustic isolate or insulation for interior partitions. Mm. And this is amazing. Like a few years ago, you couldn't even talk about doing so. You can't, you can't like, where are we going to get that material? Yeah. But now it's a part of the conversation. So um, there, over time, there will be these things that, you know, we're not quite there yet. But we are going yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's where the value of a sustainability consultant comes in is, okay, where where is the industry at? Can we start to do that? Yeah. Um, what value does it give to the project uh, as well as to the project's owner to implement that strategy? Yeah. But the thing like what I notice and what I hear from my colleagues here, and they say, okay, when you take in an, an, a sustainability expert, things will cost a lot and take uh, longer time. Like, how can we make it how to say how can we work smarter and make it more efficient like because when we bring in a sustainability expert uh, they will write a report and take a lot of hours and cost, cost a lot of money so what is your reflection about this mm. yeah uh of course we're going to cost money that's uh, <laughs> how we make our living um uh, but I, I would I would not hesitate to say that uh, the earlier you can bring somebody in the more cost effective it is uh, if you're bringing someone late in to implement strategies, it, it takes time and, and cost to do things over again. Mm. Um, but I think one of the one of the problems with with addressing the cost of a sustainability consultant is uh, it it kind of doesn't include that calculation of where the sustainability consultant will save money further down the line. Exactly, so because it, we don't see it. No, everything's kind of in its own pocket. Mm. And when you're when you're building the building, that money is in one pocket. Yeah, and that's. You pay the sustainability consultant out of that pocket as well. Mm. So you can't borrow money from the other pocket, <laughs> even though the sustainability consultant might be promoting something like uh, this energy efficiency strategy has a 10-year payback. Mm. If you got a 10-year payback in the stock market, you'd be thrilled. But mm -hmm. for some reason, uh, you can't borrow that money from no. the other pocket. To, yeah. So, so it's like the way how we calculate the budget. Mm. In in a certain sense, yeah, yeah. and yeah, it takes yeah. a bit of forward thinking because um, you know what assurances are are there that you will get that investment back? Mm. Well, I think now we have a, a track record that shows that those investments do pay off. So, what are your other like advice? You gave us advice like to to, to read about what's ha going to happen in the future, and uh, to work in collaboration with the sustainability experts. Mm -hmm. um, any other advice for an architect? Yeah, and uh, maybe. I hope all architects had the benefit of this in their architectural education, but um, 
you know, early on, we learned a lot about passive design strategies. I think I, I was talking a little bit about this yeah. before, but um, you know, we're we're living in an age where it just becomes uh, more and more common to find the technical solution, or just kind of like white knuckle our way through a problem, like like uh, heating a building or cooling a building. Um, but there there have been some uh, some kind of historic ways of solving building challenges that we've kind of forgotten about because maybe they're a little bit messier or they're, mm. you know, they're not as sexy as being able to put in this really complicated technical system that has, you know, you can control it from your smartphone. But you, yeah, I think yeah. It, maybe that's a, that's a challenge to architects is kind of to go back to the roots of how, how could we look at older building traditions that, that dealt with some of these challenges, whether it's, uh, whether it's stormwater, um, whether it's, um, yeah. Yeah, but is it possible? I, I understand, like, you mean, like, go back to the basic and understand the like, principles, but is it possible to implement something now or is just to get inspired mm. and then think about how we can? Yeah, and um, there's some inertia in the industry, right? Uh, like, if we want to create this kind of change, maybe we can't do it at any kind of big scale. It's mm. it's going to take time to transform. And there's a lot of press in, in the building industry in Sweden with, with budgets and timelines. If you want to propose something that's really different, it's hard to... To get it. It's hard to get it through. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. More advice, or should we move to urban planner? Sure, we can move to urban planner. Yeah, so let me. So now I'm 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 a, an urban planner. So what is your advice to me? Mm -hmm. I mean, the the urban planners have the. I feel like the urban planners have the weight of the world on their shoulders. the The, the moves that you make are the moves that architects are going to be following, following for years yeah. into the future. Um, I I do think that. Um, the urban planning community is maybe further ahead on on things like addressing climate change. Like the climate adaptation law in Sweden is is really addressed at the urban planning level. Um, flash storms, mm -hmm. water shortages, sea level rise. Um, so uh, I, I'm not sure how much advice I have to <laughs> urban planners, but I I would like to say like let's let's work more proactively with this uh, places of refuge that um, that we create urban spaces where uh, where people can go not just to get away from climate change effects but because people actually need green spaces yeah you you don't thrive in a in a, a space that's just concrete and steel there's a there's an innate human response to being around natural conditions and you know, it's it's one of the things that I think urban planners have done really well in Sweden you, you never have to go that far before you can get to a, a green space or mm -hmm. a blue space that's true that's yeah. true do you think it's easier for us like to talk about this because we work with a strategy level not mm -hmm. really with the design and, and i mean it's a bit uh, more difficult for architects because then they need to make it uh, happen right mm -hmm. but for us it's a bit easier because we talk more policy and strategy level or what do you think yeah, I, I guess you have to you have to embrace a broader broader set of social factors too. Like when you're doing an individual building, it's kind of easy to get your blinders on, and you're only working within the confines of your specific project site. But when you're an urban planner, you're looking at social, political issues, mm -hmm. um, some of the things that are part of the active discussion right now around like inclusion and diversity. Uh, you 
you can kind of cut yourself off from these yeah. when you're working on, you know, if you're an architect and you're just, you know, working out a structural detail or, or a window assembly, you can kind of lose sight of, of the bigger picture mm -hmm. just to you know, mm -hmm. get your job done. Yeah. So who's responsible to make this happen? Like mm -hmm. planners, architects, municipality, land developer? Yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, if you can, if you take sustainability as as um, as a model, I think a lot of the success uh, and a lot of the direction has been defined by the private sector. Like they're the ones that are trying the ideas and and showing more ambition, and and governments are a little bit behind when they see, okay, yeah, the the private sector is able to do this. Yeah, we already have our early adopters, so we can start to apply some pressure to the the projects that are lagging behind or the actors that are lagging behind. Is it because there are much more money here in the private or no? Mm. I mean, or I think you would see because of the that, bureaucracy? Yeah, I think you would probably see that around the world is that uh, because they have a different, they have a different set of conditions. They're looking to distinguish themselves. Um, you know, the really forward thinking uh, organizations that are working proactively with sustainability, they understand the business case and they're able to adjust their their path forward accordingly like it's not it's really not about saving the world in their case it's this is profitable for yeah. us um but it it has required of several organizations that they they make that initial investment mm. to get the to get the train rolling and then once the train is rolling it has its own momentum yeah yeah so so who is responsible mm, yeah the uh, i guess it would be nice to see the the governments. Uh, <laughs> it would be nice to see government um, be more ambitious. But you know, government does have the responsibility to make sure that the bar doesn't rise too high too fast to alienate the industry. What, and, what does it mean? Uh, so, if you, for example, this with the climate declarations, it's something that they've been talking about for years. Yeah, and there was lots of notice that. January 2022, if you have any public building, you're going to need to have a climate declaration. Mm. And by July, it's going to apply to all buildings. Mm. So we had years to prepare. Okay. Right, for really? LCA, yeah, for LCA experts to develop the competence to deliver the climate declarations. Um, for, uh, for organizations like uh, IVL, Swedish Research Institute, to populate the database mm. with information. Um, default values on materials where there wasn't like a product specific piece of information yeah uh so that the industry would be ready but you know now we're five months into 2022 and we still have lots of actors that are saying like i don't you know who do i call to get a climate declaration okay like, well you know, we like talking so many years yeah. yeah yeah we've we've been talking about this for a few years mm -hmm. Like definitely 2018, 2019, Bubak was already saying like, you know, this is what we're looking at. Okay. This is, this is coming. Even so if prepare. It, yeah, exactly. This is coming. You need to prepare. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so it, you, you can understand that their agencies like the Swedish Board of Housing are also in, in, a, in a, a push and pull where they have the ambitious actors that are saying like, we need to push harder because... We have a, yeah. a climate crisis, mm. uh, but they have to make sure that, you know, the, the net captures everybody. So I'm, I don't know, I, I don't envy them the job of finding where that spot yeah. is so that it's maximally inclusive, mm. um, but that still 
still drives the industry forward. Yeah. But it seems like the private in the private sector has found its own ambitions and drive mm -hmm. for doing this. Yeah. What are like what are your favorite projects that you recently worked with? Can you share with us? Uh yeah, I I worked on um uh, I worked on a well certification for Scandia Fastigheter. They certified their Stockholm headquarters. Um and and I, I think it was interesting because you, you have like literally thousands of these existing commercial offices. Yeah. And you know, sometimes you walk into the environment and it feels great. You don't really know why. Sometimes yeah, it feels really yeah. It's not sometimes yeah. it just feels like lousy. And you don't know, is it is the lighting bad in here? Is the air quality bad in here? Is it the social environment? Like people are smiling. Is it because they like each other or because, you know, because <laughs> the coffee's really good? Um, so it, it, I found this interesting because, you know, we had this existing office and we did a whole bunch of studies on it. Like, you know, what, what are the air quality values in here? Okay. Do, we have, do we have any issues with particulates or volatile organic compounds? We know that uh, certain people are very sensitive to um, maybe the allergens in certain volatile organic compounds. What are the acoustic levels? What's, uh, what are the lighting levels? Uh, and we, we just came up with this kind of map of, here's how the office is doing right now, that they could kind of reflect on and go, you know what, like actually when you sit in that meeting room, um, you really can hear the people out but, in the corridor. But did you only consider the air, con air quality or what no. are the other parameters? Uh, acoustics, lighting, the thermal comfort parameters, so air speed, relative humidity, temperature okay. in different parts of the office. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we we looked at these against the, the benchmarks in the well system. So okay. we could see, you know what, like uh, we have zero problem with reverberation time. Um, we didn't really notice. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting when you consider like reverberation time can really impact your ability to learn. Okay. Um, that's why it's so important in schools. When kids hear, like reverberation time is basically mm. how sound bounces around a room. Yeah. So if a, if a child is listening and it's too much reverb, they're getting hit by bouncing waves and it can uh, reduce their ability to retain yeah. information. Anyway, that's a bit of a, an aside. Um, but we were able to see, yeah, like uh, uh, the thermal comfort couldn't be better. Um, Let's look at the employee mm. surveys and see, like, how do people feel? Well, actually, like, 92% of people are really happy with the thermal comfort. Okay, well, then those things align. Okay. And it, it created kind of, you know, a, a platform where we could see, um, you know, here's some opportunities for improvement. Like, like that meeting room that, mm. you know, yeah, actually, right, we can hear every conversation. Yeah. I kind of forgot about that, except I remember now that I see the information. Um, so we were able to go through a well certification, not just of the physical space, but of the kind of social criteria for the office. So like looking at their stress management plan and their crisis management plan, um, what do they have for policies to support people on parental leave? What do they have for like uh, uh, company health programs? Yeah. Um, and we, we used well as a platform to see, okay, you know, we, check all these boxes, but Wells actually got some additional ideas. Okay, well, those are good ideas. Let's put them in. Mm. So we were able to, you know, not, not just directly get what they were doing approved, but to use it as a tool to make their okay. own mm -hmm. policies better. Mm -hmm. But did you study every single room or how was it? Yeah, you, uh, you go through the entire space. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
Now, you, you can use well to certify like uh, a base building without the tenants. Mm. In this case, we certified their office. So, okay. yeah, meeting rooms, uh, open offices. They've, they've got some quiet rooms. They have a nap room, yeah. um, uh, dining area, reception. So, yeah, to go through them and see, like, is there noise from the installations? Yeah. Mm. Um, is there enough light at the desk surface in the back office? Wow. Yeah. So like uh, you you do this so to make the employee happy and feel good. Basically. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um. You know, you can kind of think of it in terms of um, uh, you know, the physical the physical environment sets the ground for the social environment. Um. You know, one of one of the things that uh, that I think really motivates companies to to work with physical and social environments is if you look at just what an impact that has on human health, like. Mm -hmm. If you think about what impact genetics have, we tend to think, oh, yeah, my genetics are going to define my health conditions. It's only like maybe 10% of our health is determined by our genetics. So okay. that's a big piece you can yeah. work with. And usually think like behavior is a big one. Like, do you choose to smoke? Do you choose to work out? Well, that's actually only about 25% as well. Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of healthcare access do you have? Yeah. Like if you can't get to a doctor, if you can't um, get a yearly checkup, that's going to have mm -hmm. an effect. But the biggest piece actually is physical and social environments. And if you, you know, if you take the example of the cigarette, like yeah. we tend to think, yeah, if I'm sick from smoking, it's because I picked up the cigarette and smoked it. And certainly that's a factor. But think about the physical and social environmental aspects of that. Like, where'd you buy the cigarette? How much did it cost? Mm -hmm. Do you have a smoking buddy? Did you smoke when you were outside in that sunny piazza in Rome? Yeah. Or were you smoking out in the rain in November? <laughs> Those are physical environments hugely change your experience of the yeah, cigarette. Yeah. So you you start to understand that, okay, if you know, if I work with this physical piece, that's actually what's really compelling. Also because we're architects and urban mm. designers. Like we're not geneticists. Yeah, we yeah, work yeah. with this piece. So uh, I think when you when you present that to um, to an organization that, you know, you you can get them access to yeah. uh, company healthcare, but where you spend this nine hours a day can have just a huge impact. Like, if you if you have a good environment, you go home and can sleep better. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, you know, your energy isn't totally sapped, and you actually have some to play with your kid, uh, cook dinner, and yeah, enjoy yeah, your yeah, life yeah, after. Yeah, yeah. Like, what a thought! This is so interesting. Yeah. Wow. Do you what what was like the the as the Swedish people say aha moment mm -hmm. like you were sh I don't know not shocked but like yeah. you'd be like oh wow yeah um I, I don't know I when I when I first walked into the office I just got a feeling that the, this was going to be a really great project like just the energy from <laughs> the energy from the team everyone okay. yeah everyone seemed to really like each other <laughs> there's just a good vibe in the office yeah. I don't know if that sounds a little bit too flaky but um i mean if it's if the reality like this so why not like, yeah this is yeah it. yeah um then when we started talking about the project it uh it just like everyone was really on board i guess mm -hmm. that was the aha moment that yeah like this team is really engaged so and, good. It's, yeah it's kind of the best that you can hope for yeah it saves when... a lot of energy right yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> did you find it easy to work here in sweden mm -hmm. oh that was a that was a transition for sure um, it's a bit of a different working culture in Canada. Like, uh, I, I usually say that Canada's kind of halfway in between the U.S. and, and the U.K. Okay. Um, 
I, I would say like we're not as um, we're we're maybe a bit mellower than than the Americans when it comes to like career ambitions and working really hard. But I I would say that work-life balance is definitely better here, but it was something I kind of had to learn. I was just totally (laughs) shocked when I took a three-week vacation. I'd never taken it. Oh, wow. (laughs) Really? How many days you have in? Oh, when when you first start working, you get two weeks. And then after two years, yeah, after two years, three weeks. And after 10 years, four weeks. So, uh, yeah, I think I'd lived here for maybe three years when I first took a vacation that was... uh, Three weeks, and it almost felt like I'd quit my job. <laughs> and now I just can't imagine taking less than four. Yeah. You need that. You need that time. Yeah, of course. Um, so I think it's it's a much more kind of humane way of working. And uh, I also think like the work environment in Sweden is just so professional. Everybody really? is. Yeah, everybody's very courteous. In which sense? Uh, I think everyone's really courteous and. Um, you know, there's there's less kind of eccentric personalities uh, as a place like. That. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was like your biggest challenges? Like I know, like the language is one, but like yeah. the other. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely the the language would have been one, but um, no, I think just learning learning how to work here. Um, you know, consensus is really important here. Um, I'd say that. Anglo-Saxon work environments are much more hierarchical. The boss says, "I need this, do this," and if you're under the boss, then yeah, you, you have do to do the thing. Mm. Here, it's much more like uh, you know, everyone gets at a table saying, "You know, this is our challenge," mm. and everyone at the table weighs in on this is the way that we can solve it. It uh, it it means that you know you put a lot more time into planning. Yeah. I'd say that in Canada, it's much more like, okay, you know, let's start doing this, and we'll. Um, we'll meet in a couple of days and see how it's going. <laughs> so I'd say like it's it's maybe a little bit more spontaneous and creative than mm-hmm. the work environment in Canada, which was the only one that I was to. Yeah. So yeah. it took some took some time to get used to, you know, the how how long things take in yeah. Sweden. It's a lot more like, you know, it we need to we need to have this meeting and, and everyone needs to have a say and I, I really appreciate that because I think in a lot of forums I've I've been allowed to have a voice that maybe in in a Canadian work environment I would have just you know done my job yeah 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 I'd done the job that the boss set out for me to do interesting yeah but now let, let's go to the other part of um, this episode it's more mm-hmm. going to be about personal relationship mm-hmm. with the city and so on are you ready sure so uh, what makes you happy. In your city, uh, so I I live in Seoul. Now I live actually not too far away from here, in uh, in Gamlefjordstaden. It's the old. It's like the Swedish Hollywood, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but much much smaller. It's it's got the old production buildings and and uh, the little villa where the directors would eat and the old cafeteria where the staff would. Eat. And they built some residential buildings there. Um, so I've been there for about seven and a half years. It's just a really cozy little neighborhood that uh, um, it's a five minute walk down to these two big lakes with this five kilometer walk around the water. Um, and and there's really been a lot of development in the area since I moved there. Uh, there's a couple of sisters that have started up 
a couple of businesses, a coffee shop, okay. the Juniper Tree, and then a little yoga studio called Little Peace. Mm. And these two little businesses have just been these community catalysts uh. um, for, you know, it, my upstairs neighbor goes to the same yoga studio, it, and uh, a person across the street goes to the same yoga studio. So it, they've really been these anchors for the development of this community feeling uh, mm. around the neighborhood. Um, so I, 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 that's something I really love about living there is you know, you know the people in your area yeah. to say hello. There's these little places where you walk by and wave hello to the mm. owner. Um, super close access to, to nature, uh, very family friendly. Uh, and then there's this heritage too of Swedish Hollywood. Yeah. Ingmar Bergman filmed his movies in the area. Um, so this just to be, you know, just to be a part of this at one little moment mm -hmm. in time is really interesting. Special. That what you mentioned now about like the uh, local community. Because mm -hmm. usually maybe people have another image about the Swedish community, like yeah. it's very hard to get in. But how is it for you? Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say that it, it changed a lot after I had a kid. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it, I guess, you know, maybe people say the same thing about getting a dog is that they, yeah, they're like, just kind of instant yeah, conversation starters. Yeah. <laughs> but you have a kid and then suddenly you meet all these other people that yeah. have kids and, and, um, and it really strengthens your, you know, your, your sense of attachment to the place. Mm. But I want to, uh, actually mention, mention a book that uh, that I've been reading that uh, there's a book called This is Where You Belong, Finding Home Wherever You Are by Melody Warnick. And basically she she found herself feeling kind of displaced after a move to somewhere that she didn't know anybody. And, and she basically tried to figure out, you know, how can I make it feel like I actually live here? Uh, and so she's got different strategies. Like she, she created a little neighborhood group that once a month they go to a local business and they commit to spending $20. Wow. And so, you know, once they went to the skateboard shop and most of them are like, I have nothing to skateboard yeah. shop, but, uh, you know, they buy like a t-shirt for the nephew for upcoming Christmas. And the kids that own the skateboard shop are like, wow, thank you so much. This is the best day we've <laughs> yeah. ever had. Yeah. But it really strengthens these kind of community connections. And I think, uh, you know, Solna is one of the places in Stockholm with the highest number of immigrants living in, in mm. the municipality. Um, so there's a lot of us that are, you know, they're com we're coming from outside the country or we're coming from outside Stockholm yeah. and we're building a community here. So I think little tips like this that, you know, having having these little community anchors or mm. community groups can really uh, increase this sense of belonging when you're so far from home. Yeah, yeah. And what makes you sad? Oh, sad, uh, sad about the city. Well, <laughs> that I'm moving away. <laughs> okay. So you're moving back. Yeah. I'm moving back to Canada in, mm. in, uh, in three months for family reasons. Uh, so I'll, I'll be very sad to say goodbye to the neighborhood. Um, but, uh, I suppose some of the things that I, I think that, uh, the municipality could be doing better. There's been a lot of closures of, of schools and of playgrounds. And these are a, an extremely important resource to to parents and to families and uh, and to children. Uh, I'm not sure if politicians quite grasped just um, just the kind of flight that there is to more school friendly, park friendly, family friendly municipalities when uh, shutdowns are happening. 
Um, and I understand that there is there's press to build more residential, but it shouldn't come at the cost of green space. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one of the things that uh, that's troubling. And it, it you can open up the local newspaper, and it, uh. it just feels like so much finger pointing. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's it's a it's a failure to preserve these spaces. Yeah. Um, I'd also like to see, you know, a little bit more attention paid to them. Uh, you know, we're right on the border of Sumbibai. Mm. Uh, and yeah, it, I, I feel like I can level some criticism at, uh, at Sol Nastad that uh, the playgrounds are not as well maintained as in Sumbibai. Mm. Um, so we, we quite enjoy going to Sumbibai's parks. Instead of, okay. Yeah, mm. yeah. But that's that feels like a pity because there are some great parks in in yeah, Solnum, but yeah. you know, they 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 need a refresh. Mm. They're very well used. Yeah. So the next question is, what should architects stop doing? Mm. <laughs> 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 oh, what should architects stop doing? Um, okay. Uh, I, I personally would like to see more eclecticism in Swedish architecture. I think if you go to other Nordic capitals, you can see a lot more diversity in buildings. And um, we have a lot of quite conformist architecture here. Um, and it, it makes for a very harmonious uh, urban fabric. But I, I think it also limits these kind of moments of delight that you find mm. in, in cities with more architectural diversity um you know it really it get back it gets back to the point that architecture is a form of media and it's one of it's one of the oldest and people have been using buildings to communicate forever yeah. uh since long before we had paper presses you know this was how people in power communicated to, to people that they had power um and the buildings that we build today stand as 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 a record to future generations of what was important to us and mm. When you have a very harmonious and conformist urban landscape, like that is the message that gets communicated. So it would be nice to see some more diversity, like for the message that diversity is is valued and yeah. and cherished. But diversity, like in which? What do you mean? Like in which way diverse? Like yeah, like uh, if you if you look at downtown Stockholm, like uh, Stockholm waterfront would be like one of the most eclectic buildings. But this is not an eclectic building. Um, if you, if you go to, uh, Helsinki, um, you can find the, the building by, um, uh, by Alto, by, uh, Stephen Hall. You have these moments in the city mm. that are quite diverse, the, the church in the rock, um, that create these, these moments of, uh, wow, that, that, that building is very unique there. Mm. Um. And if you if you look at the political discourse, it seems like the discussion around diversity is is quite a challenge in Sweden right now. Mm. So it's for me, it's interesting to look at how is that expressed in architectural terms? Are we comfortable with embracing diversity in architectural expression, mm. like true diversity? Yeah. Like I would love to see a crazy building here. Uh, but you you not... will never see. Exactly. You'll never see. Yeah. Yeah. But. Um, you know, it's it's a little bit out there, but you know, if you imagine that aliens landed on Earth tomorrow, mm. and they couldn't understand our language or our movies or our art, but they could they could read us through our buildings and our urban landscapes, yeah. and they would understand things about 
about uniformity, about hierarchy, about who had privilege and who didn't. Mm. Um, and, and people read buildings in the same way. And 100 years from now, how will the future generations yeah. reflect on, on our embracing of diversity if our buildings don't tell that message? Yeah, yeah. I think it's also like if, you, if an architect wants to do something, let's say, diverse or let's say crazy, they will get attacked by the society and not only like by, you know, by the professionals. Yeah. That makes this kind of feelings, okay, be careful, don't go crazy, uh, just stick with how everything looks like so mm. you, you will not get uh, critics from the others. And then like it's lower the, the, the creativity, I, I think. Yeah, yeah, and I guess there's a, you know, nobody likes to be in a, in a position of, yeah. of conflict yeah. either. Yeah, I mean, okay, we have like the guidelines mm. and, and how buildings should look like or like where is the, the boundary or the, the line, but still like we are doing almost the same thing, right? Mm. Like in, in every city you go here, you can see almost the same like planning. It's very harmonious. And, of course, yeah. yeah, of course. But like you, you don't see this um, a masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. To be honest. Yeah, and uh, it, it like could from be... Like the, from the newly built. I'm talking about the newly built. Yes, building. exactly. And I think if uh, if you if you visit, it could be you know my Canadian side coming up that I'm I'm longing for that kind of diversity. But if you go to a place like Toronto, you you can find no shortage of of uh, architectural gems that uh, that have embraced um, eclecticism. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I guess that that would be kind of what I'm I would be longing for. But it's it's beyond the scope of an individual architect to take yeah. that on. Yeah. You know, I think even if you had like a, uh, a an individual that wanted to build a villa that was really ambitious, like mm -hmm. that individual would be putting themselves in the crosshairs because the neighbors would hate to have an eclectic exactly. building in their neighborhood. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure what the, what the solution is there. <laughs> and maybe it's this kind of chicken and egg, like maybe, maybe with an increased diversification of, of mm. society, it will just become an undeniable Yeah, force. like by yeah. time. Exactly. Mm. And then we'll start to see. Yeah. So, so, to answer the question, what architects should stop doing, mm. you have no answer? Um, or try to push maybe for more yeah, diverse. Yeah, try, try, to, try to embrace diversity. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you're a new, let's say you're a mayor in Egypt and, and you're allowed to add one rule or to create one thing in all the cities, what will you add? Mm. Uh, you know, I think there's some cities that have already done this. Uh, you know, Vancouver, for example, is is a obligate projects to commit funds to public art. Okay. So in Vancouver, um, building projects have to commit one percent of the budget to a public art project, and it means that you get these fantastic installations. Like you know, Dale Chihuly is a glass artist from Seattle, and in mm. in downtown, I think it's on Burrard Street, you can find these big installations of Dale Chihuly glass. Um, it, it means that um, artistic expression finds its way into the urban environment in connection with building yeah. projects. It's, it's not just a, you know, a kind of a fun mm -hmm. and It's actually smart, like 1% is not, I'd say. It's, it's maybe. <laughs> I guess if you have a $100 million building and that's yeah. <laughs> not out of the range of possibility, uh, it means you've got to put a million dollars on on public art, but mm. it's a it's a gift to the people, right? 
and it's it's public, so it's not something that's yeah. trapped in a lobby or mm-hmm. or an interior garden. It's something that's there for mm-hmm. the people, and and it's it's transformative. You can you, know, you can go on uh, a walking tour and visit these mm-hmm. kinds of yeah. artifacts. This I, would be great. To I think see. we have it here in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Do you have the same room, like the the one percent? But I'm not sure if it's like from every project or someone. But I I heard about this as mm-hmm. well, like here. Yeah, I'm working on a I'm working on a parking garage project right now. We're we're okay. trying to uh, we're we're trying to think a bit outside of the box uh, for a parking garage, and and we're talking about you know can we actually use the the parking garage as a space for public art? Like can we? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it maybe we have some walls that okay this year we're letting uh, this school paint this wall and it'll be up yeah. for three years, yeah. and and then mm-hmm. another wall the next year is mm-hmm. done by another school, but. Just to you know, in, in, in a way, anchor that space yeah. in the local community, and and give the children a chance to kind of explore, yeah. give them a connection to place. I mean, I think there's these little opportunities all over the place if yeah. we're just not afraid to think outside the box. Do you uh, do you th- you also think that okay, what can this building be in fifty years or mm-hmm. not? Not that far, like. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's a really good exercise for architects to go through, um, and not to make the the kind of moves that will be too restricting in mm. in the future. Like we know that super deep floor plates are not so adaptable yeah. to to different uses. If we thin the floor plates and have the chance to turn it into different types of buildings, mm-hmm. um, you know, some some other big moves like like ceiling heights. Um, you know, there's a building down on Rieringsgatan that's that's being torn down by the property owner because they can't put in the kind of ceiling heights that they want to put uh, in. Ah, okay. Um, otherwise, otherwise the building could be reused, but mm. it it feels like, yeah, you know, an almost unnecessarily trivial reason to tear down mm. a functional building yeah. just so you can get an extra kind of thirty centimeters yeah. of ceiling height. So I'd say that that working with working proactively with buildings for flexibility for future mm-hmm. use is going to be really important. Yeah. Um, as well as you know, working with things like deconstructability, like can that assembly be taken apart if someone decides they they want to mm-hmm. move the building? Tangbom Tangbom did an interesting project with the temporary uh food hall at Ostermalm. Okay. Uh wood construction um that was in place while they were renovating and then they ended up Deconstructing the building, and it was sold and put up. It's being put up somewhere else. Nice. So these kinds of examples are, are you know, it, it doesn't need to just be something that you can throw up for cheap yeah. and then tear down and mm-hmm. and uh, send to uh, Brambolt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it can actually it can actually be designed for future flexibility. Mm. And as part of the original design, they actually came up with renderings like how you could turn it into. Cool. I forget now a, a climbing center or yeah. um, a community bath or and, and this kind of exercise you could easily do for for other projects. So uh, if you can choose to be something else than being a human, you're laughing. <laughs> do you ask this question to everybody? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's like the funniest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what will you choose to be and why? Yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah, I had to I had to give this question some some thought actually. Um I, I would I would pick to be like a uh an urban tree, I think. 
tree. Yeah, like uh, something like an oak mm -hmm. that is around for a really long time. So I think it'd be really interesting to observe the the evolution of the city ah. um, and the evolution of different families. You know, the tree gets planted by one person, yeah. and then that same person brings their grandchildren there, who brings their grandchildren mm -hmm. there, and you know, there's something quite quite uh, intense and almost intimate about you know touching a really old tree and just thinking how you know oh. how much has this tree been through like the very bark of the tree yeah. has incorporated the the pollutants in the air at the time and you know it's sucking up sound waves from conversations over decades um uh, yeah yeah, yeah something yeah. kind of profound about <laughs> being uh, being a witness to yeah such an evolution mm -hmm. but in which city would you like to be as a tree uh maybe not in canada yeah, why <laughs> it's so cold <laughs> it's so cold in winter <laughs> oh um you know i i i, I just re i really love stockholm so i would i would probably pick to be a tree in stockholm okay so uh, you talked, you mentioned um, about the, like uh, the work-life balance. How was it in Canada and how is it here in Sweden? Here in Sweden, are you good like in, in say, separating between work and then private life? Mm -hmm. Or are you, you still think about your project after work? Yeah, it's maybe, it's maybe the curse of a sustainability consultant is that you, you take your work with everywhere you go okay. and and the decisions that you make all the time like uh, you know i'm going to take my bike because um that's the lowest yeah. carbon way for me to get where i'm going mm. um you know what what you buy at the grocery store where you buy your next pair of shoes so i guess in a sense um yeah sustainability has kind of uh found its way into into my life in a myriad of ways mm. like the last two pairs of shoes that I've bought, I've bought on Tradera. Okay. Um, but I think, you know, the more conscious you are of what your, what your choices are from a sustainability perspective, the less able you are just to mm. turn your eye away from them. Yeah. And what, what is your routine, like daily routine? Mm -hmm. When do you wake up? What do you do? Oh, uh, I, I, I wake up around 6.30. Um, on, a, on a good day, I, I get up and meditate and write in my journal. Um, if I, if I don't manage that because it's getting bright quite early on, uh, my, my son comes and wakes me up, <laughs> wakes up the whole family. How old, how old is your son? He's five. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, it's a fun age. Uh, he's, he's still, at, he's still at the age where he doesn't mind a little morning cuddle. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, then it's, uh, it's work during the day. Um. Yeah, and the night routine is, uh, I, I don't know if all parents are like this, but uh, life becomes really kind of simplified, like make dinner, hang out together, go to bed. Yeah, what time do you go to bed? Uh, around 11. Okay. And I try to read before I, I go to bed. Yeah, I see you have a... Yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty avid reader. I usually have, I don't know, four or five books on the go at any uh -huh. given time. <laughs> What what do you have now? What are you are you reading now? Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm I'm reading this book about um, about belonging to the city and finding home anywhere you go. Uh, the one you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm I'm reading "Not This Kind of Girl" by Lena Dunham, which is just hilarious. Mm -hmm. uh, she she was the uh, producer and the star of Girls. 
uh, and um, I'm also uh, reading, um, I, I think it's called The Happiness Project. Okay. Yeah. So it's about like how to reframe your I guess it's not the architectural project. No. <laughs> no. Uh, and then I'm also reading Values by Mark Carney. Okay. Um, Mark Carney, is a, he's the former uh, head of the, the Bank of Canada, the former governor of the Bank of England, and the special envoy to the UN um, for climate-related climate, climate related finance, I okay. think it is. Anyway, he just, uh, he, he wrote a very thick book, 600 pages or something on uh, on values and and especially how the, the proposition for values uh, mm. the financial value has changed over time and and uh what implications that's had uh, through the covid pandemic and into the, the climate crisis oh, did you read it all of it not it's, yet it's, it's the other, yeah i'm uh, educated as an architect so reading an economic treatise is going a little <laughs> bit slow <laughs> Googling every single. <laughs> Taking a lot of notes in the margins, um, but he's. Uh, I mean, he's 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 got some ideas that. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think just uh, just coming at coming at the sustainability discussion from a different perspective. Because when you know when you're educated as an architect and you work with buildings, you kind of get your your bubble yeah, on, and of course. to stick your nose in a book like that can um, really kind of broaden broaden your perspective to how. This is realized in different industries, and mm. then how can you spread that over? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. W when is your favorite moment during the day? Mm -hmm. Oh, if I have a little bit of time just to myself first thing in the morning. Like when you wake up? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Make a cup of coffee, sit on the sofa. Nice, nice. Yeah, write in the journal, open up the window shades, uh, oh. look outside. Yeah, that's nice. that would be the best. And the worst? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, you don't need to mention it. Yeah, that kind of like mad 10 minutes uh, before you need to get out the door in the morning. Yeah, it always feels like you have 20 minutes worth of stuff to do. Do you have time for hobbies? Uh, yes. Um, I'm, I'm quite, an, uh, uh, quite a Martha Stewart, actually. Uh, I do a lot of knitting, baking, mm -hmm. cooking. Nice. Um, I, I really like to, to do things that I can uh, fix with my hands. Okay. Um, you know, maybe, you know, maybe this is also kind of a sustainability hack as well, but, you know, when you, when you think about consumption patterns and, you know, how many, how many sweaters you could buy for 2000 crowns that if you buy them at a, at a fast fashion outlet, you know, you can buy four sweaters, wear them three times each and then toss them in the recycling bin. But if you take that 2000 crowns and spend it on yarn and spend 50 hours knitting a sweater, it suddenly has a completely different value proposition you know you you spend time with it in the creation of it you size it perfectly to the person that's going yeah. to be wearing it mm. uh and then you know the experience of of uh, wearing something that's had that investment of time and attention you know i kind of feel like time is the most valuable thing that i have to give yeah. so it's it's my favorite thing to knit things for other people yeah. it's a gift of my time um so I, I'm trying to get more into into this kind of connection to things, and and one of the ways that you can do that is by actually making making the things that you wear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, but I also, you know, I I also like to do a lot of things from scratch, like um, you know, not not buying the the processed version of something, but making it, you know, yeah. from the beginning yeah, yeah. at home. It's very satisfying. Mm -hmm. 
So you have like a good balance between your, your life, I mean private life for yourself and for your son, mm -hmm. family and for the job. Do you keep a good balance? Oh, uh, on on and off, I would I would say it's you know it's been a real challenge in the pandemic. I guess it's been a challenge for a lot of people. Um, you know, different different kinds of pressures have have come on, and um, uh, it's maybe it's maybe affected other expats in this way as well. But it's it's been a, a special set of challenges being really far from family mm. at a time when there's an illness that no one really has a like a good idea of what the long-term prospects would be um so i'd i'd say that my my balance got really kind of mm. shifted in in the pandemic yeah um you know canada had a very different response to the to the pandemic than sweden did uh so it was also fielding a lot of questions from home of but is, is it just uh, going mm. crazy in sweden <laughs> like well <laughs> no, we're not wearing masks. Um, I mean, in retrospect, it's it's very mm -hmm. easy to look back and say, you know, I'm I'm enormously grateful that that my son went to daycare during yeah, the pandemic, yeah, and yeah. he he wasn't learning in front of a computer. He he wasn't wearing a, he wasn't wearing a, a mask to school. Um, they were taking other measures. Um, friends back home with kids same age have had just enormous challenges trying to manage work and at-home learning yeah. and childcare. Um, but you know, while it was happening, it, it was a real kind of uh, feeling of uncertainty of, you know, who's, who's got it right? Like Canada's a very high trust society. Sweden's a high trust society, but their approaches to the pandemic were very different. Mm. What's, what's the right, what's the right advice? Yeah. So yeah, you kind of occupy this, this no man's land between the two, trying to find something that will, uh, work for your family. I thought like we are this almost same mm -hmm. like Canada and Sweden. Mm -hmm. Do you f you feel this or no? Yeah, yeah. When we first moved here in in 2011, we hadn't been here more than a few weeks when uh, my husband and I said to each other like this move was easier than if we to the states. Really? Because yeah, and I think before we came, we thought oh you know like we don't speak Swedish. It's yeah. Be... But what we very quickly came to realize is that you know when it comes to the really important things canada and sweden are are quite aligned like mm. both canada and sweden have like a big love of nature but we also have you know, very long parental leaves we have um uh, social health care uh universities not free in canada but the government pays something like 90 percent. so okay like it, almost it's it's yeah. almost free yeah uh, i mean of course it's a it's a tough slog when you're a student trying to pay tuition but mm. um it doesn't have to be a, a limiting factor. Like if you want to go to architecture school, you can. The, the cost does not prevent you from going to mm -hmm. architecture school. Um, and, and we kind of realized like, okay, yeah, we have to, you know, we have to learn a new working culture based of on course, consensus yeah. and making yeah. plans. Yeah. Um, we, we, uh, we don't speak the local language, but it would have actually been easy. I think it would have been harder to, accommodate the kind of social shift that would be necessary to move to the US, like suddenly paying for healthcare, mm -hmm. um, this increased divide between the haves and the have nots. You know, I think when you come from societies like like Canada or like Sweden, uh, it's it's not much of a comfort to say, okay, well, you know, if my kid gets sick, I've got health I've got healthcare, mm -hmm. like he's okay. Mm -hmm. When you think like his best friend 
deserves to have yeah. justice. Yeah, and and I think to move somewhere like the U.S. Um, would have been a harder transition. You know, like maybe no parental leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that that was quite a, a pleasant surprise that you know, some some of those social sustain social sensibilities to mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. we felt you know attached. Yeah. Um, were things that that made Canada and and uh, Sweden quite similar. I'm happy to hear that. And you now you live in uh, what do you call it, like film city or oh, Hollywood? Film staden. Yes, yes. Yeah. You watch movies and so on. Yeah. You have time for. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're watching. Uh, yeah, we're we're definitely watching movies. A lot of TV series yeah, as yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> like I guess, like everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I thought like it's a special when you're living in the Swedish Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, <laughs> you start to little... watch old movies, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did actually when we moved there. We watched the uh, all of the Batman movies, and it's it's kind of funny because like the very first week of architecture school, um, we watched the Seventh Seal by Batman, and okay. in Film Staden there is a a bronze statue. From ah. that movie, because they filmed it on those yeah. grounds, so wow. it's kind of surreal to you know the very first week of architecture school we were we were studying modernism mm. in our cultural history term and uh, and then suddenly I'm living where they filmed the movie quite surreal <laughs> that's so fun again i'm I'm very happy to talk to you. I'm very inspired as well, and now we are in the end of this episode. But hopefully when you come back from Canada, we can talk more and record more episodes. So the first question is going to be that you give me and the listeners three takeaway messages. So three three takeaway messages to the, the listeners. Uh, I'll just say again, um, you know, increase your consciousness about how climate change will affect where you live. So, so check out these tools like the NGFS Climate Impact Explorer. Uh, start to consider you know, what what are the the longer term effects that that will affect you in in your work. Um, I would also say uh, because I, I've really benefited from it myself is is really get to know your city and your neighborhood. I think. And when you when you're visiting a city, you probably have a list of all the the sites that you see. Um, but once you move there, you know it can be months or years before you go to a museum again or go on a tour again. It's it's really fun to be a tourist in your own city, and uh, guaranteed there are some gems in your neighborhood that you had no idea were there. Um, yeah, it uh, I, I think it really adds to your quality of life when you feel a connection to to the place where you are so uh, i would i would recommend taking a look at at the book this is where you belong it's it's been um it's been really inspiring for me and uh i guess i just always like to add a little uh tip to you know to to be brave (laughs) um i think especially for architects uh you know when when you first come out of school you you just see like uh, nothing but possibilities and uh i think the longer you work the more you can kind of get into into a rut and you can kind of get broken down with the disappointments that are just a natural part of the job um you know i'm a i'm a gen xer 
And I, I would say that, uh, you know, I, I'm always looking to younger generations who, who are coming into the industry with more energy and uh, more ambition and ideas. And that really feeds me. I, I, I think the kind of trends that we used to have in the world where it was, you know, the people that have been there the longest, the, the oldest ones that decided the root of things. But you know, I think we're seeing a shift now that, that practitioners are turning more and more to younger generations. Uh, you know, I'm I'm sorry that they're the ones that have to fix all all of our messes, um, but uh, it's really I'd say it's really important for for the listeners that are you know millennials, Gen Gen Zers, um, like we really we really need you to be brave. We you know the world is counting on it. Yeah. Thank you. And the last question is going to be asked by you. So, what is your question to us? say uh, 20 years from now what d describe for me the city where you're living years from now so like 2042 okay good question how old are you <laughs> and where where what is the city you're living in and what is it like wow <laughs> good question <laughs> well thank you thank you so much for coming for sharing your knowledge your story i'm very happy to talk to you and and uh, hopefully see you again and record more episodes. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for the invitation and the great conversation.